You are listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with Rob Reed and Josh Galicki, bringing together the love of nature and photography. Episode 15, we lose ourselves in the exposure triangle. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with me, Rob Reed, and my co-host, Josh Galicki. Hey, Josh, good to see you. How's it going? Hey, Rob, good to see you. Um, it's been a little while. Going well, enjoying the fall weather. Things are getting a little cooler here, and uh, yeah, it's going well. Yeah, I wish they were getting cooler here. It's been, we had last weekend, Jen and I went up to uh, Wales, and we had, it was mid-20s, blue sky. It was like summer. Wow. It was wow. it was just incredible, and we we kind of went to a bit of a honeypot location. Of course, it was buzzing with people, which isn't really my favourite thing. <laughs> I do, you know, do like a bit of space, but you know what can you expect on a Sunday when the weather's really nice? But no, it's 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 remained warm. It's almost like summer. It's been wow. so mild. I mean, we're getting a bit of rain now, but mm. the the colour hasn't come in yet. The autumn colour hasn't come in yet. Wow. Uh, which is quite, I mean, normally by now there, there's a really good, you know, there's a really good display and you can, I mean, I always say that in, well, in my part of the UK in particular, the first week in November is always the best for the autumn color, but I'm not sure that's going to happen this year because mm. it does look, you know, it, it does look like it's going to be a bit more muted and maybe, maybe it, you know, it'll be a little bit later this year, but we'll, we'll see. But yeah, we're talking a little behind too, actually. Although peak yeah. color where I'm at in on the eastern shore of Maryland, it's normally early November, actually, like poison ivy, um, some of the sumac that turns first. So I'm seeing a little bit of that outside. Uh, but then again, in northern Pennsylvania, where I'm originally from, I've checked with friends and they're like in some places at peak color. So it's, it's kind of interesting where, you know, yeah. three and a half hours away, how different it can be from coastal plain to, you know, upper in the Allegheny Plateau and some of the upper. Yeah. But I mean, again, you're, you're, you know, you're, as I said, you're coastal. And of course, you yeah. know, the UK being sort of fairly mild, being surrounded by, you know, by, by sea and with, uh, you know, with, with, with a jet stream and obviously all that sort of stuff. Then, I mean, we're around about the same sort of time, aren't we? For, you know, for, for, for those sort of colors coming in and, and the seasons seem to change at roughly the same sort of time. But, uh, but talking about autumn color, I've been, I've been out photographing trees quite a lot recently, oh, which awesome. I've really been enjoying, I have to say. So not necessarily with all that magnificent autumn color yet, but I, you know, just, just sort of getting out in, in woodland and immersing myself in it and, and sort of getting myself away from that, that sort of quick fire bird photography type stuff, which is like spray and pray. And like you come away with about 4,000 images. It's actually nice to come yeah. home with about a hundred or 150 photographs. It, for change. The, when you find a composition, it's not as exciting, at least for me. Like if I'm walking around and I see a cool mushroom, I'm like, Oh, well, there's the mushroom versus, you know, Oh, look, a pileated woodpecker just came out and I'm going to, you know, so there's, but, um, you know, it, it's just a whole different form of shooting, you know, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to try to get out in the next couple of weeks for waterfalls and fungi and, yeah. uh, you know, once the color really starts moving around, but uh, I think, I think yeah, you no, get that sort of instant dopamine hit, don't you? With bird photography where, you, do. you know, you're seeing things all the time and, and there's always something happening and, uh, you know, it's so dynamic. Whereas the, the sort of pace of life, if you like, is a lot slower with woodland stuff and plants <laughs> yeah. and fungi. And, and actually, I've really enjoyed it because I've, I've, I've really enjoyed a sort of reconnection with everything and taking a bit of time out. And uh, I just find it so relaxing. 
It's, yeah, it's and been, it, it, it's very convenient when the landscape decides not to move on you or fly away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, there, there, yeah, there are benefits. But it's funny because I went out the other day because I had this, you know, woodland and mist and fog goes really well together because it sort of provides that separation to help with the chaos of woodland. And, you know, I was looking at the forecast the other day and it was saying, yes, there's a promise of mist and fog in the morning. And I thought, great, I'll get out for first light. And of course, I got to the, lo I, I left home and it was foggy and mm. I got to the location, there was nothing. And I thought, oh, okay, just my luck. Oh, well, I'll, you know, go for a nice walk anyway and see what I can find and, and, and just take a few, few things. And then lo and behold, after this amazing sunrise, this blue sky morning, about half an hour into it, we get all this sort of low cloud just rolls in and we've got wow. this lovely sort of fog. And it was, oh, it was fantastic. Yeah, it, really it's kind that. of interesting when that happens too. It's happened, it happened to me a couple of years ago. I was up in Maine and it was late summer actually. And I was paddling on a small little lake up there looking for loons and you could just see the fog and it was midday, you know, the fog, fog came in and it, it just, it would look like the Night King from Game of Thrones. It was almost yeah. eerie. You could just watch it come in slowly over the water and it just engulfs you. It's a really cool experience when that happens. Yeah. No, and you can create some really atmospheric photographs. Yeah. That. And trees are, out all the sharp edges in the yeah, tree. And, and trees are so interesting if you get the right angles. And it, actually, they're quite, um, they're quite difficult. They're quite challenging to to find the, you know, decent compositions in. So yeah. birds are quite easy in a way. Because you, I guess you know when you where get your, your point of focus for the frame yeah. is going to be it's the subject, and it's hard with a tree. What part of the tree? How do you do it? You know, going in and out. Yeah. And the angle. How do you, how do you mess with the depth of field? How you know what do you want to include? What do you want to exclude? How tight do you go with the composition? How loose do you go with the composition? It's all these sorts of factors to to take into consideration. So I really enjoyed the challenge. I thought it was great. You know, and I'm I'm not one to be pigeonholed anyway as a photographer. You know, oh, he's a bird photographer. He does this. He does that. I I just enjoy shooting nature basically, and uh, yeah. So I go through these phases. So I'm I'm in a bit of an arboreal phase at the moment. I would say. So yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying that. But it's cool. it's just so good to get out and reconnect with this stuff. But yeah. So anyway, we thought we, today we'd have a chat about uh, the exposure triangle. You know, so. For those who aren't familiar with that term, um, and I'm sure most of you are listening to this uh, are, then it's that balance between ISO settings, shutter speed, and aperture to create the exposure you want for the photograph. So that's what we thought we'd have a, a bit of a deep dive into uh, today. So, I mean, I guess for a place to start perhaps uh, would be ISO, because I think that is the area that has been revolutionized the most in recent years with obviously the development of digital technology and more recently the mirrorless cameras and the way that those sensors are now able to cope with those high ISO settings compared to well when we go back to the days of film you know if you were using anything more than 400 you know you were struggling <laughs> and now look what we've got and I, and I guess you know we, we've discussed this in some of the other podcasts that we've done that that revolute that sort of ISO revolution, if you like, but how that has liberated us as photographers, particularly wildlife photographers, uh, in those sort of low light situations. I guess that's probably a good place to start. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. And ISO, when you look at the past couple of years, I mean, I, I can just go back to my experience. I had a 7D 
This was back in what, 2014, 2015. And I wouldn't go past ISO 800 now. I mean, anything's really on the table as far as ISO goes. Interesting enough, I'll, I'll say when it comes to exposure, uh, I always um, have controlled my ISO settings manually. I know a lot of people now, they shoot in manual like I do, but uh, ISO is set to auto ISO. So a lot of folks will rely on the camera to determine the ISO based on, you know, the shutter and the aperture settings. And I think people feel more and more confident to do that just because a lot of these newer cameras are so good with ISO. So if something gets bumped up to ISO 8000 or, you know, 10,000 or whatever, or even higher than that, folks are confident they can have a usable image, not just for the sensor and what the cameras can capture, but also you have like DxO RAW and some of these processing softwares where they can handle noise so well. But again, it depends on the camera. Um, if you're dealing with a camera that's a little older, that's still okay too. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out what are the parameters, what are some of the strengths of your gear, and how do you apply that in the field in terms of what you're trying to capture? Because of course yeah. we're talking more, I'm talking more in an action setting if I want to capture something fast moving and, uh, and, and presumably, and, and I, I, people tend to use that sort of setup, um, though, you know, those sorts of settings when they looking for more literal type images. So they're allowing the camera to just to determine the uh, exposure and, and then you are altering the exposure level by using the exposure compensation as opposed to adjusting the manual settings to get the look and feel that you want. I mean, with digital cameras, it's a lot easier, uh, you know, with mirrorless these days because you're seeing the exposure in real time through the viewfinder. So you are actually seeing what the camera is uh, dictating, if you like, and then you can make those adjustments on the fly. I do use auto ISO quite a lot, but it is generally when I've got an exposure setting in mind and I've dialed in, you know, the exposure compensation that I want the camera to to use in that scene if things are moving around a little bit and the lights coming and going then perhaps perhaps i won't but it, it just depends on the situation but uh, no i i have found that i'm not i'm i don't care about iso anymore it's got to that point where i i'm just not bothered as you say i've got images i've shot at 10,000 iso and it, I, I really haven't got a problem with them i mean yeah. my my default setting even with the 800e that I shot with, you know, for so many years, my auto ISO setting, my, you know, the, the sort of my, my starting point, my default was a thousand anyway. And then I'd kind of work from there if I wasn't getting enough or I could get away with less, you know, on the ISO front to get a, say a cleaner shot, but they were always pretty clean depending on the, on the light levels. Uh, so yeah, I, I do, I do short shoot. If I get my words out properly, shoot auto ISO, a fair amount, as you say, in those sort of action type scenarios where the lighting may change quite quickly and you don't want to be constantly adjusting your settings and then perhaps, uh, you know, compromising a shutter speed, for example, or a depth of field setting with the, you know, um, with the aperture settings. And you, you just want the ISO to determine the exposure so you those other things are already dialed in and you don't have to worry about them so that's probably when i would i would use them yeah and and i'll tell you i think stylistically i like some grain at certain times if you have an animal shaking off if you have rain i think adding grain or having you know higher iso resulting in more grain that actually adds to the image uh not a lot of people think that way 
I think it's sexy to be, okay, smooth as butter, smooth as butter, ISO 200, run the noise reduction, and it kind of looks fake to me. I like a little grain in there, so I'm not bothered by it even stylistically. It, it's almost like a facelift, isn't it, when it's gone too far? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hollywood stars that just yeah. <laughs> look, look like they're constantly smiling because they <laughs> – yeah, I'm thinking of what's his name with Dolly Parton. Well, she had a, a bunch of work too. Yeah, what but, was it, his but name? it, it, it uh, Islands in the Stream. Kenny, Kenny. Oh, uh, Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers. Kenny. Yeah, that comes yeah. to mind. So, yeah. oh, but <laughs> but it's a bit. It can get a bit like that. But I, I get what you mean. It does look a little. You can get too perfect, can't you? Yeah. And you lose that. Um, you lose that raw feel and that that edge and we've seen it in wild art haven't we when there are some images where the photographers have chosen not to denoise something and use the grain to add that atmosphere and it jesus it works so well sometimes it looks great not black and white monochrome stuff yeah. yeah i think it looks really good i mean when you go back to the days of film and and you, you that film grain is i think it's almost it's much nicer it's aesthetically more pleasing i think the film grain than digital noise yeah because it's they're not the same thing you know digital you know when we talk about grainy images you know it, in digital photography it's digital noise whereas the grain in film is you know it, it, it's it's just got a whole different feel to it but i guess the connection is made because they produce similar issues but I, I just think some, you know, some images, when you've got that that atmosphere that that grain produces, I think it's almost a crime to take it away, because yeah. you you know you're losing something, you're losing that atmosphere, and life isn't perfect, and I sometimes I think we try to be too perfect, and then we lose something, you know, in the interpretation of that photograph by the post-processing process. I, so. I agree. I, I, I was photographing, this was last, I think it might have been last fall, um, elk, early morning, all, all misty, foggy, and I did some uh, black and white conversions, and the grain looked incredible, and I ran a noise reduction. I'm like, oh, this looks terrible. Like, why am I even doing this, you know? And I kept the grain. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, controlling ISO manually um, can also be beneficial. We were just talking about using the auto function and cranking it actually for intended grain. That could really look good stylistically. I mean, speaking of ISO, um, I did use auto ISO in the past. One of the things that has come out, and again, I'm a Canon shooter, and I think this is probably the same for Nikon, Sony, and the rest, but uh, there's I have three dials now on my cameras, which is a game changer for me. Before, I would have two dials. So with three dials, I can control ISO, aperture, and shutter, each with its own dial. So I do everything on the fly. And just, you know, the more you do it, of course, uh, it's muscle memory at that point, right? So you can move. But having the three dials um, allows me to control, control it manually. So I don't shoot um, auto ISO that much, uh, if any. I, I've got just everything on the dials now so I can move things around. And again, the more you do it, it just it's muscle memory at that point. Yeah, it's not something I do a lot now. I mean, as I said, I will use it if I've got an action sequence and I want to keep those things dialed in. And I want all my concentration on composition and making sure I capture the right moments. But other than that, I'm with you. I, I, I tend to do it on the fly. You know, I know where the buttons are. I know where the, hang on, I know where the dials are. And it's just, it's just automatic. And, you, you know, it takes a split second 
for somebody who's used to the camera, used to doing it, and as you say, it's muscle memory, and you just you just in there and straight away and 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 making the adjustments on the fly that you need to at the time. So I, yep. I don't use it a lot, but I I think people shouldn't be frightened of of using auto ISO and shouldn't get too concerned now about if something comes out at 10,000 ISO, oh, I can't possibly. I mean, I still see in some of the competitions that I judge and some of the images that now come into to, to wild art as well, I do still see people that want to try and uh, get away with using that sort of 100 ISO and will compromise the shutter speed or the aperture setting to get there in the mistaken belief that actually it's going to make a whole load of difference to the end image because it really isn't. You know, I would I, I would challenge people actually to tell too much difference between something shot a hundred ISO and a thousand now in reasonable light. Low light, yeah, I accept that's a different scenario, but quite honestly, if you're in low light and you're shooting wildlife, very unlikely you're going to be using a hundred ISO anyway. It's all in the shadows, right? You're right. It's normally in the shadows where you yeah. get, um, or if you underexpose and you brighten it in post, that's where you'll introduce, you know, a lot more noise too. No, that, that actually makes really good sense. You know, I, I'm just thinking about some of the other settings and aperture always fascinates me in setting aperture when it comes to wildlife photography. I'll say this, you know, most people, the general assumption is shoot wide open. If you have an F4 lens, you shoot at F4. If you have an F2.8 lens, you shoot at F2.8. And I've been looking at some EXIF data. Um, I was looking at, actually, I got the Bird Photographer of the Year book recently and, and the Wild Art book I was going through not that long ago as well. And I've noticed that a lot of shots, photographers will still, mm -hmm. they'll stop down. Uh, and you know, so if somebody's shooting, you know, F8, they're at F4, if they're at F4, then they're at F5, 6, and, or there'll be, you know, somewhere in between, you know, F4, 5 or what have you. And I think there's, it. There, I don't know if this is correct or not, but it, it never bothered me. A lot of people seem, seem to think, and this was a thing years ago, the sweet spot. Okay. Well, if you have an F4, stop down to five, six, that's the sweet, sweet spot. Or if you're at F2, eight, go to F4, because, you know, of course the outer, the outer edges of the lens aren't as sharp and you want to get to the sweet spot. I always shoot if I'll never stop down to get to the supposed sweet spot, because at the end of the day, if I'm shooting a bird or a mammal, there's always a little bit of cropping there anyhow. Right. And you know, I'd rather get a shallower depth of field if that's what I'm going for, you know? So I do notice that though, that seems to still be common in the wildlife photography community that stop down to the sweet spot, shoot open, but stop down a little bit. So you get that sweet spot in the lens. Uh, yeah, I don't know. No, I, I, I agree. But the, the, I mean, when you come to shooting things at say 500 mil or 600 mil, when you lose it using that telephoto or that long prime lens and you're at F4 and you're shooting something that's 20 meters away, shooting at F4 or F5.6 or F6.3 ain't going to make a hell of a lot of difference to your depth of field in that image. It, it, I mean, it just really isn't. Yeah. Um, if you were at the minimum focal distance of that lens, whole different ball game, whole different ball game. You know, your aperture will have a lot more effect in terms of the depth of field that you're able to create. And at that point, you know, really need to be at f8 plus to yeah. get. If you if depth of field is your thing and you want a reasonable depth of field, then that's where you got to be at to get 
more out of the lens, uh, you know, more out of the subject when it's closer to you. The further it is away, and maybe you're maybe you're focusing at infinity, ain't gonna make a lot of difference. Yeah, F28 for the mountains, it doesn't matter. You're no, you're yeah. totally right, Robin. I agree. I, I stopped down and I try to really monitor my depth of field when I'm close to an animal versus when I'm further away. When I'm further away, I want to shoot as open as possible. Like if it's uh, you know, I was shooting white-tailed deer, they were drinking in the cove back here. And I was in a kayak, but all the trees were behind them. The trees could be really distracting if they're in focus. And I don't want to do a lot of softening and filtering in post because I just I just don't like to spend hours on an image. So I'll shoot them at, you know, I have a lens that's F2. So they're sharp, but everything else is reasonably soft in the background. So I'd rather go wide when I'm at a distance and when I'm closer is when stopping down is is the most important thing. And yeah, it's so here, yeah, so here's the thing. Um, the longer the lens... The closer you are to the subject, the shallower the depth of field will be. The further, you know, the shorter the lens, yep. the further you are away from the subject, the greater the depth of field will be. So I use this and I, and I use my the 200 to 500 a lot for shooting things like plants and sort of larger fungi, you know, larger fungi, that sort of thing. Because I, I like it if I'm shooting at 500 millimeters and I've got the minimum focal distance uh, between obviously the, the the lens and the subject itself, at five point six, which is the maximum aperture that I can have with that lens, the depth of field is is artistically speaking, I, I love that because it's so shallow, and it it just softens everything else but the thing you really want in in focus. And you can also use things like out of focus foliage to add all that sort of you know, the lovely framing and softness around an image and create those effects. So I, I love it for that. But if you, you know, if, if I was at infinity, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get anything like that sort of depth of field with that lens. It, it just, it just wouldn't work. I need to be as close as I can be, which I think is why the macro stuff works so well because yeah. you get so close to it. You know, the depth of field the aperture is, is, is really critical with those lenses um, to create the image that, that you want. I mean, if you're shooting at, f2.8 with a 100 mil 105 mil macro lens and you're really close to the subject there ain't much going to be in focus with that you know <laughs> I, I, <laughs> there really isn't everything's going to fall away so you you know yeah. you need to be at f11 f16 plus but, yeah and, know, and we have an underrepresented button on our cameras too which you know I, I should use it more often i always say the depth of field preview button which yeah. you know for me it's in the front of the camera and i don't use it enough you know just to kind of and of course you can chimp and play around but if it's an animal and it's there you you might just have one shot at that so you want to get you want to get that right but there's a lot more nuance you know as we're speaking i'm just thinking there's a lot more nuance to aperture than what most most people think it's just if whatever my lens is just shoot wide open because i'm going to get the fastest shutter shallower is better yeah that's the case most of the time but not always you know there's there's more nuance there yeah but i think you know think about the distance you are from the subject yeah um you know make that your your sort of primary thought and then work the aperture around that because as i said if you're at infinity anyway the aperture setting isn't going to make a lot of difference really when you look at an image and particularly if you're looking at it on social media and you can't get really close to it and you know and, and zoom in at 100 percent and study you know the you know the background versus the subject you may find that f11 or f8 the lens performs better 
But again, you're just not going to see it unless you zoom in right at that sort of hundred percent. And you, you know, you are grabbing, you know, the the you know, the magnifying glass again on the on the print to see the difference. I mean, people go on about it, and you see these reviews online about various lenses and how sharp they are. The MTF charts, you know, yeah, they're photographing the, yeah, those, yeah, okay, you know, and they're saying, well, look how look at the difference, and this lens is much sharper than that. And you're thinking, well, that's all well and good, but by the time you've processed it you've added a bit of sharpening and yeah. you've seen it at the size that generally people see it you are not going to be able to tell the difference yeah. we're not shooting a 20 dollars bill in controlled environments with a, or a toy i mean it's just it's not how the no, we're, we're not we're photographing wildlife and <laughs> and and really is is that the most important thing about the image to me yeah. it's about light it's about composition uh th that's what it's about yeah light, light i guess light and composition yeah, I think for me, sharpness only takes a major, major precedent if it's like macro or details or, you know, feathers or, you know, something when you're in close, I think sharpness is is more important. But when it comes to composition and you're not in the macro environment, um, I guess you can make an argument even in macros in some cases, it's not that important. But uh, yeah, that, it totally outweighs everything. It's all about composition. Yeah, I guess it depends it's on the cool sort of photography you, you like as well. I mean, if you like me or I like, Lots of sort of out of focus stuff, I guess. <laughs> you know, I like I like things that look like pencil drawings, for example. If you're mm. photographing plants, let's say, or you're using a high key approach with birds or whatever, you know, sharpness isn't my my main priority with that. You know, it's it's the overall feel of the photograph, and actually, a bit of softness can can actually add things, you know, add to the image, you know, in in yeah. those circumstances. So, I guess. You know, the whole thing about using these sort of three elements to uh, generate the exposure that you want, you've got to think about the end image and what you're trying to produce uh, to, to, to sort of get the best out of, of those settings. So, you know, the the one that we haven't touched on yet and the, and the remaining sort of corner of the triangle, if you like, is 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 shutter speed. And I guess that probably is the most dynamic setting of all if we're talking about creating different effects with your with your images, particularly with wildlife, which can be very fast moving. And if you're photographing a plant, unless it's blowing around wildly in the wind, it's not going to make a lot of difference. But if you're photographing birds in flight, you know, a, you know, a running cheetah or whatever it might be, then your shutter speed choice is critical to you know, to, to guide the type of image that you're trying to create. So if you're trying to freeze the action, for example, and, and a very, very common mistake I see uh, in a lot of the competition images uh, is people underestimate the actual shutter speed that they need to get that subject sharp. And I guess the closer you are to something, the faster it's moving, the faster the shutter speed you will need. And the other factor that people don't take into consideration um, much, as much as they should do is the actual magnification effect that the modern day sensors have had. So if you're going from a 12 megapixel image, I guess, which the sort of cameras that I first started using through to 45 megapixels, just think how much larger that image is and how much more that magnifies any slight blurring of the subject through a lack of shutter speed. You'll get away with far more 
with a 11 or 12 megapixel image than you will with a 45 megapixel image because you can you know you can zoom in a lot further and there's a lot more detail with that yeah i had that problem with the 5 dsr which was canon's 50 megapixel this came out in like 2015 or whatever um and uh I, again i'm not a techie was the anti-alias filter so that it, it it softens images too and then you know again there's just there was so much more sensitivity where I thought I had my shutter dialed in and then a lot of my images were softer than what I expected. And it was just due to the resolution changes. And yeah, that's a really good point, Rob. Yeah. And, and it, it is something that's been mentioned by a few people. If you, you know, if you go onto YouTube and sort of other podcasts, you know, I know this is something that has been brought up, but yeah, those anti-aliasing filters, they were a nightmare. Actually. I yeah. remember the, the, the Nikon D 800, you could have the 800 with the filter on it or the 800 E didn't have it. And I got the 800 E for that very reason, because I didn't want that softening effect. Yeah. It was, it was maybe more for landscape photographers, I guess. I'm not sure, but, um, it was a pain in the sense that, you know, the raw images were just rendered softer. And then of course you had a sharpen and, but, uh, no, that's yeah, a good was, point. Yeah. That's a really good point. But uh, no, so uh, I mean, I guess you know when when we come to taking artistic images, um, the understanding of shutter speed, I think it, you know really is critical. Uh, if I'm looking to free something in motion, then my sort of default starting point is probably one two thousand five hundredth of a second, and I'll work upwards from there. I mean, I remember. A year or so ago, a couple of years ago, maybe I remember taking fighting moorhens, you know, where they're, they're like coots, they, you know, raise up and they're, you know, going for it with their feet and they're just knocking. Yeah, they can be nasty. Six, right? six bells out of each other. Uh, and I, I had, I was at one, I remember it was good light. I remember I was at one five thousandth of a second and I thought oh, that, that'll be enough. And I tell you, those feet were still blurred at, wow. one, at that, you know, and I'm thinking, that's, I was yeah. surprised at that. So it's amazing how you can underestimate, you know, it's the speed knowing that you your subject, need. right? And, yeah. and how fast, like an eagle, bald eagle, or a great blue heron. I shoot them a lot. One five hundredth, I can, you know. Uh, but, but they're but they're big birds, birds, aren't they? Bigger birds, slower yeah. wing. You know, if it's a songbird, you know, you really have to crank up your shutter speed. So it's it, it's knowing the animal, and and even um, I like a bit of motion or a sense of motion. So sometimes when I'll have when I'll be photographing birds in flight. I'll render it sharp enough using a shutter where the face, the body's in focus, but the wings will have a sense of blur. So it indicates motion, which can add more interest, you know? So there's different ways of approaching it to your point, Rob, the artistic yeah. approach. And that's where it's not always the fastest shutter isn't always a solution. Sometimes slower is better. And that's probably where you want a bit more aperture as well mm, to, yeah. to actually try and get that head sharp because all, we've all seen those shots where they're, with the head's pretty sharp, and you're panning with the with the with the motion, uh, and the wings are blurred because obviously they're moving faster. And uh, yeah, that so it all does all depend on the effect that you're trying to go for, and it's only really experience that will tell you, you know, what sort of shutter speed or what area you need to start at and work from there and review the results and and, and work around it with the particular subject. Because as you're saying, herons, swans, geese, that sort of thing you get away with a slower shutter speed because of the size of the animal and the speed they fly. Whereas if you're looking at a kingfisher, for example, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. A whole we different need, uh, Jerry Rebich. Is it Jerry Rebichek? The Czech yeah. photographer? He is the master of s slow shutter. We need him. With I think, snow geese in particular. 
Yeah, we need him for. I think he was just in Bosque del Apache. He's, I think he's from Czechoslovakia or Czechoslovakia, yeah, right. Czech Republic. Yeah. I'm dating myself, yeah. but uh, yeah, he's so good when it comes to slow shutter and the artistic effects of that stuff. Uh, and herring girls, he worked a lot with as well, didn't he? Mm, that's a good that's, subject too. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is. They're confiding and they'll move around you, and yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've experimented with. I mean shutter speeds of i mean ridiculously slow shutter speeds like one twentieth of a second you know when you're holding a 500 mil lens and it, and it sounds ridiculous but actually i mean most of them will, will be a oh that's a delete button job but every now and again you'll get an absolute keeper and it's it's something so different from the you know just freeze the motion standard shot that you see time and time and yeah. time and, again. and they're frankly boring after a while how many burden i mean birds in flight it was a big thing as i think when the technology improved because it's like oh wow i can get this bird sharp right okay great and everyone thought that was so cool and i mean there's just a dime a dozen now i see all these birds and bird and flight shots it's like okay okay great it's frozen its wings are up and it's flying big deal you know there's no interest there but so i think you know people try to take it to the next level and that's experimenting with shutter and which i think is good you know it's it, well i mean i think if you if you have the equipment and have a reasonable understanding of photography. As you say, those sorts of bird in flight images are pretty easy. Yeah. yeah. But it's creating something different that is going to grab attention is the key. And then it's understanding how those exposure elements work together, which is really where this sort of podcast was going um, to create the effect that you want. So, you know, if we're talking about, you know, motion blur it's understanding the subject understanding the area you need to start with to create the sort of image you're trying to to achieve and then moving the other pieces of the jigsaw into place around the you know the, the the major exposure element because i guess with when we're talking about photography it depends what we're shooting but there's always one of those three elements which is the sort of primary consideration, I think, yeah. when, when we're looking at the exposure of the scene. So yeah. with that sort of birds in flight example, then it's shutter speed. If it's a plant where we're looking for some sort of artistic effect, then it's aperture. If you're looking to introduce grain and noise to try and add a bit of atmosphere, then it's ISO. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's so, interesting. You're, yeah, I mean, depending upon the composition and the output that you want, obviously one of the three takes priority. I mean, I was just culling um, some images from Shetland. I'm still culling <laughs> from my 45,000 images. I, I didn't dare ask actually, <laughs> how are you getting on with that? Yeah, I need a glass of wine each night and I, I'm starting to go through. So I'm about halfway there, but I, I did do a lot of pan blurring uh, for full, Northern Fulmars and Gannets in flight. Puffins a little yeah. bit too. And, and when I was photographing those, I would intentionally set my shutter, you know, to 110th, 115th, which means I had to bring my ISO down to as low as possible, 150. And then my aperture I had to, because, you know, I wanted to bring it down as much as possible. I'd raise my aperture. I'd stop down the F16 or whatever it took. Um, so I'm intentionally going slow for pan blurs. If I want to capture a freeze action, it's just the opposite. You know, I'm wide open. I'm bumping my ISO up and I want to make sure my shutter is as fast as possible so I could freeze, you know, if it's a. Um, so the priority is changing, or, isn't it? For, for one exactly. of those three. Because exactly. the thing is, with those blurry images, you don't really care if you're at f16 because most of it's out of focus anyway because <laughs> yeah, of the blur. Delete, so it yeah. doesn't make any odds. 
Yeah. It does, doesn't That's make right. any odds. And yep. actually, you're, you, you know, as I sort of uh, mentioned earlier, your chances of getting a head sharp or something like that are better at F16 anyway than yeah. at, at F, you know, 5.6 or whatever it might, you know, maximum aperture might be F4 or whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting. Error on the pendlers. Yeah. It's just, you just yeah. keep doing it and doing it and you'll cycle through. And if one out of a hundred come in, great. You know, it's just part of the game, but. Exactly. But isn't it, isn't it funny that the more experienced you get with photography, the less you actually think about those exposure elements yeah. as being important, but actually having this conversation with you, you actually say, hang on, you know, you do this just by a pure instinct. You don't think about it, but when you start teasing it apart and dissecting it, you go, actually for somebody who's perhaps less experienced, then this is, this is quite tricky stuff to get your head around to start with. You know, you might, yeah. you know, you, you might be relying on automatic settings quite a lot for the camera. You might be giving it aperture priority, for example, which isn't necessarily going to give you the shutter speed that you want to achieve a sharp bird in flight or a blurry bird in flight <laughs> because you, you know, you're using the wrong priority. Yeah. You know, you and, need to, and that's how I started aperture priority. A lot yeah. of people I think have, and some people still feel comfortable, you know, they'll adjust through exposure compensation where I was reaching limits. We were talking about birds in flight when I was shooting a lot of that stuff. You know, if you had a bird in a bright background goes down to the mid tone and, you know, things. So, or, you know, the bird would be darkened and the, you know, so it's, uh, you can't really run the exposure compensation on the fly like that. And it was, it was limiting in certain instances, but that's how I started aperture priority. Um, some people started shutter priority or program mode, you know, and then you eventually get to that point. But once you learn aperture ISO and shutter, and th that's the foundation of everything, all the other stuff on these cameras where you can do a custom function button and this, it's all secondary, you know, it, these three, you know, mastering exposure, is that's what it's all about everything else i mean they're the keystones you know. aren't they to the whole thing yeah. and uh yeah i mean I, i'm with you i mean i used to shoot and i still do sometimes aperture priority for the majority of my bird photography actually when i when i first started i tell you the thing that has really revolutionized that for me more than anything is mirrorless because you see the exposure through hmm. you know the viewfinder so rather than having to keep looking at the meter and almost intuitively guessing where you need to be with you know, with the settings or with the exposure compensation if you were you know shooting the you know the, the standard dslr where you couldn't see what that effect was immediately until you reviewed the images afterwards so you were literally going by intuition yeah i find that you know the the, the fact that you can see that exposure through the viewfinder is one of the major game changers actually for me with mirrorless because it it makes that decision-making process much quicker and you can adjust, you know, literally on the, on the go as you're shooting the thing, as it's moving between those lighting conditions. Um, but sometimes I will use a, you know, an aperture priority. I don't tend to use shutter priority a lot. Never have done really. I do it for pan blurs. That's pretty much <clears throat> yeah. it. You know, if sometimes you know, I would do it for pan blurs if I want something really slow, artistic, but um, I used to play a game when I had DSLRs. How close could I get? I'd normally get in the ballpark. I would just look at a, a scene and just dial things in and take a shot. And I, you know, after a while, you get decent. You know, you'll you'll either yeah. hit it or you'll get pretty close where 
you'll you'll just make a few minor adjustments. And then back in the day, there was the Sunny 16 rule, the gray card, all that other stuff. And, you know, you don't uh, have to worry about any of that anymore, thank God. But no, isn't it amazing how things have moved on so swiftly? Yeah. Because when you, yeah. I mean, did you ever own a light meter? Uh, you no, know, a, no. See, I thank did. <laughs> I, I actually had a light meter. Wow. You know, and and you think, well, if you if you're making light meters now, you're not selling many, are you? <laughs> well, not for photography anyway. I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> and even and then you know when we evolved into like you know DSLR and it, you know it was you know the histogram, bring up your histogram, get to the right of the history, and and yeah, there's definitely truth to that. But you know if you're shooting high key or um, I'll shoot a lot of like bright white um, snowy egrets, great egrets. And they're busy background, so I underexpose. You know, you know, so you don't, you know, while it's generally true, your exposure should get as close as you can to the right of the histogram. That's not always the case. You know, you have to play around with it, make your own style up. No, it depends on on the image that you're trying to create, doesn't it? Because I, I've said this quite a lot, actually. You touched on it with the sort of low key and the high key. It's a great, you know, that, that, that's sort of a, a great technique to uh, isolate subjects when you have got that, busier background so let's say you are shooting from an elevated position and you're shooting a wading bird and you can't get that low angle on them to you know to, to create that out of focus background so you're going to have a lot of the you know a lot of whatever they're standing on or standing in in focus and distracting you i did this with um <clears throat> oyster catchers on the on the beach in shetland and I deliberately over, overexposed them probably by about two stops. And then all the sand and the water just loses the detail because you're overexposing it. And therefore, it focuses attention on the bird itself. I mean, particularly something like, you know, an oyster catcher with that, you know, that lovely colorful bill. And then you've got the black and the white, which are so contrasty anyway. I mean, they make great subjects for high key. But if you if you use those types of techniques and then, you know, swap it around, you know, using low key techniques. If you've got something which is um, perhaps sort of illuminated by a shaft of light, for example, I've seen a lot of those um, gannet shots or nesting seabird shot on cliffs. Like, um, you know, we've got a place in the UK called Bempton, which is quite popular. And I've seen people use those sorts of techniques where they just underexpose. So they lose all the background detail and then they focus all the attention, you know, on the bird, which is where it needs to go. So they're using those yeah. techniques. But, but they're understanding, you know, the exposure uh, and understanding how they need to compensate for what the camera wants to tell them to create the image that they, that, you know, they want to end up with. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I, I love high key imagery. I mean, it reminds me of that old uh, Japanese silk art, you know, the, the low key stuff I think is more inspired from like a lot of European type forms of lighting. You know, uh, the only thing that bothers me it's a side subject. It's how people process where if somebody takes an image in flat light, they put a radial filter and they put this fake beam of light coming down. And it's like the light of <laughs> yeah, heaven, yeah. you know, and it's, it's just touching the side of the animal. I mean, that's great when it's natural. That's what you want. But, you know, there's so much fakery in the processing on that. And it looks so horrible to me. And it's gotten to be this huge trend. I see I've been seeing it on Insta for like two years now. It's like, when is this yeah. going to go away? Please, God, well, take your beam of light and take it away from <laughs> you. Beam of light and be gone with you. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, I guess if you keep getting likes and, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, going to it perpetuate is, yeah. itself, isn't it? It's a self-perpetuating yeah. thing. Sorry <laughs> if you can hear Sky in the background. She's barking. She always makes an appearance oh, she, on these 
podcast. Well, you might the mic might she, not have picked it up. She agrees with me on the the, the light light. Oh, of she heaven. does. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. that was she was she was voicing her opinions on the on the light <laughs> of God or whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, <laughs> theory. Oh, crikey! So, exposure compensation. Do you use that button a lot, or do you tend to? do things completely manually these days yeah i i shoot completely manually but i pay attention to it we were just talking about high key is a good example so if you know maybe i'll go i'll start plus three on the you know based on my my when i dial my exposure and if i'm plus three and i'm like okay maybe i need to dial back maybe i should be plus two you know so i pay attention to it in the extremes other than that i you know if it looks good you know and i'm happy with you know how it looks in the back of the camera i don't pay too much attention to it yeah i mean i used to do it quite a lot you know when you know before before mirrorless um you know i would use it quite a lot and i can i can remember going plus four you know in some circumstances it's completely yeah. nuts but sometimes i you know if you're shooting a white bird against a gray sky for example and then you you just want the hint of that bird and it just bleeds into the sky and it's just and you want that completely artistic feel but i tell you plus four as you'll know isn't as ridiculous as it sounds so yeah i would yeah. use it in those sorts of situations but i'm with you now with mirrorless you, you see what you're getting anyway through the viewfinder and it's not redundant but it, it beyond me generally using minus 0.3 as a default setting because you know, I, I want to underexpose things just a tad, yeah. particularly with birds. If there's any sort of bits of white, I don't want them blowing out. In fact, sky's coming in. Come on, <laughs> and, you know, it's it, even if there's strong backlight and you get like you know late morning sun, strong strong backlight. What I'll like to do, um, I'll underexpose maybe you know by three stops. Where when you underexpose. You're just then catching all the extreme highlights and all the midtones and everything else are just black. And that's what you want. You want the silhouetting in the rim light. Oh, I think I see Sky now. There she is. Yeah. 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 She's coming in. Yes. <laughs> it's, well, as, as people will know if they listen to the podcast often enough, that we tend to shoot these, uh, shoot these. God, uh, photography <laughs> on the brain. <clears throat> Record these is what I meant. Um, late in the evening for me because of the time difference with uh with with the states so uh yeah jennifer's jennifer's gone to bed and um i think she's she's just after a bit of attention so yeah she wants <laughs> she wandered in and now she's wandered out again she <laughs> she doesn't like the door being closed that's what she it wanted is. to check in on you yeah 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 so <laughs> but uh no she's a she's a big she's a big part of the podcast now sky <laughs> With that with you know make, making the sort of vocalizations every time we record so we, yeah. we have to get her a mic yeah, well, it wouldn't be the same without her now, would it? <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so, what's um, what what's next for you? What are you what are you what are you up to next? You know, um, that's a really good question. Probably fall stuff. You know, waterfalls, uh, fungi. The geese are back. I'm waiting for the swans to come back. I'm starting to see some ducks uh, out back. So, I'll definitely have my float blind out, especially in no come November. Owls will be coming back. You know, speaking of exposure we were just talking about exposing technically and versus exposing for your own aesthetic i know a lot of owl photographers they shoot owls you know at dusk or at night and uh, they'll underexpose and when they process the images the images come out underexposed and that's by intention i've seen uh social media posts where people are like hey you should really brighten this i'm like you're not getting it no this was taken at dusk it was really dark and 
I want to convey that. So I guess for people listening, you know, always shoot for your own aesthetic. It's, it's, it should be less about the technical rules and more about what you want to convey in your composition. Yeah, exactly. And then use those sort of elements to, to, to create what you, what you want. And yeah. I'm, I'm always one about, you know, with, with photography, when people talk about rules, it's like, well, what rules? <laughs> you know, yeah. They don't exist for me. I, yeah. I always think that, you know, if you are shooting images that please you, then that's the primary thing. If other people don't agree with you, who cares? Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways. Um, I think, uh, well, as we, I think we discussed this when we talked about social media, perhaps people put too much uh, emphasis on being liked on social media or those images being liked on social media. And if, you know, I mean, it used to happen to me if I put up an image and I got 150 likes, let's say, which is quite a lot for me, um, that's great. Oh, that image has done really well and you're really pleased. And then you put another image up and it gets 30 and you go, oh. Well, yeah, what was wrong with that there, picture? Right? You know, yeah. what happened? You know, why didn't they like that? Oh, I don't, you know, I don't care. Yeah. It's, it's, it's and nowadays it needs to be a, a 15 second TikTok or a reel with, you know, a cat fallen or some sort of practical joke. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> what, what are you doing a silly dance to a 1970s disco thing yeah. wearing a, wear, wearing a, I don't know, a reindeer outfit or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, I've thought a lot about this too, Robin. I'm thinking, why are Reels and TikTok so much more popular than just still imagery? And I, I think it ultimately comes down to, for most people, the layman, when you're looking at a, a shot, it's just visual sensation. It's one stimulation. It's your eyesight. When you're looking at these quick Reels, it's audio and it's visual. So You don't have to do as enough. much work. There's Yeah, there's another dimension too of stimulation. And I think that's got to be why there's a additional appeal to it but uh it's unfortunate you know it's what yeah it is, do, you, do you know what <clears throat> the thing about photography is and what i really like and if people have sort of tuned in and watched some of those awards presentations for wild art for example i will quite often talk about the images that have done well is that they have this dimension to them which keeps you going back for more so rather than you know taking that quick sort of hit from a chocolate bar for example you know it's almost like a gourmet meal that you keep coming back to again and again because every time you look at it there's something different to see or it tells a story or it's it's arresting in some way and i think that for me is so much more than a video which can captivate your attention much more easily because of you know there's a lot more going on initially but actually it still has to work a lot harder to get the same attention. And the people that are able to produce images that do that, I think, are, you know, they're, they're the ones that come across with the skills. Yeah. And, and that's why those images do well. So I'm rambling, but no, I agree. Hopefully that's come across. One is one process is much more literal than the other, meaning video, I think. And, and it's a, it's a hit. It's a dopamine hit. It's really quick. People get stimulated, but, um, there's not as much depth. There as a well thought and well, well composed draw, you know, image that's presented in, you know, yeah. but there's not a I lot mean, of those either. It's not like every shot is like that, but it's, I mean, you, I, I, you come out with it, you come out. Yeah. With I mean, I guess, you know, how many, why do you buy photography books? For example, you don't pick them up, read them once and then put them back and never look at them again. Oh, I don't anyway. I mean, you know, I guess there might be some people that do that, but 
I have I have them and I and I pick them and I pick them up and I look at them regularly. Probably is the wrong word, but over and over again in certain points when I'm looking for inspiration or um, yeah. you know I'm 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 feeling perhaps less enthused about my own photography. I will use them to stimulate my artistic juices, if you like, and get me going again and, and looking at what other people do and how they approach it. And it gives me ideas as well because yeah. everybody looks at photography in a different way. I mean, we're going off a completely different tangent from the subject, but <laughs> who cares? I mean, this, this is, you know, as people know, this is organic and this is what happens. We've got uh, lost in the triangle, so we're going to come out. Yeah, we, it, well, I told you we were going to get lost in the exposure triangle. I like triangle, that. I like exactly, that. That was good. <laughs> that's exactly what's happened. So no apologies there. Anyway, I've lost my train of thought, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Oh, dear. Anyway, Josh, this has been a really enjoyable discussion as ever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think what, and next we've got a guest, haven't we? I think we do. Yeah, we, we have we, got a guest. We've got a guest lined up, and we've got a, uh, a bunch more episodes and you know topics to talk about. So, I'm looking yeah, forward. But to we'll, we'll we'll probably be able to get the next episode out a little quicker than we got this one out. So, apologies yeah. for the the delay. We're we're trying to pick up the pace a little bit, but it's difficult <laughs> with everything that's going on. And I've got a you know I've got an important thing coming up at the end of October. So I'm going to be out for like 10 days with that. And we've got wild art coming to a conclusion as well. So I've got all that to organize, you know, and all the uh, awards presentations and, and what have you. So, uh, but we, we, you know, the, the intention is that we do pick up the pace a little bit with, with these because it seems to be resonating with people. And uh, so again, you know, if you have any suggestions as to the topics you'd like us to cover, then do put them in the comments and we will read them. Uh, and we have acted on one or two in the past, uh, you know, and done episodes from from suggestions. So we, you know, we'll, we'll add it to the list. Um, and if there's a if there's somebody in particular you want us to talk to, get a guest on or whatever, and you, you know, you can you can persuade them to come on and talk to talk to the two of us, um, you know, then, 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 you know, likewise, put that, put that in the comments. Um, but please leave us a rating uh, on, if you've enjoyed the episode, uh, leave any comments that you'd like, hopefully good, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> if not, then, Hey, you know, thick skinned uh, and tell us what you like about the podcast, what you don't like about the podcast. Give us any suggestions that you might have. Uh, and uh, yeah. And, perhaps share it on your social media platforms and spread the word because you know if you've enjoyed this episode then perhaps there's somebody else out there that would too and that, that's what it's all about for us so uh yeah so anyway great to see you josh yeah likewise rob we'll and, be uh, thanks thanks for the thanks for the time and uh, and the wisdom and you know <laughs> and the chat and <laughs> well we'll we'll see you all again hopefully I think within well, it's going to have to be. It's a couple of weeks, isn't it? I think we've got yeah, this lined up. I think up. in uh, yeah, was it? Would we say the twenty fifth? So yeah, within the next two weeks. Yeah, within the next two weeks, and I I need to get that episode out before I go away. So I know we're recording it like two days before I well, probably a day before I go away actually. So I'll need to sort of turn that around fairly quickly. So hopefully in a couple of weeks' time there'll be another episode for you all to enjoy. Uh, so uh, we look forward to recording that, and uh, well, we'll see you all again next time. Thanks all. You have been listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast. If you have enjoyed the content, then please help us to spread the word by sharing a link on your social media platforms, giving us a like, 
and leaving us a comment. See you all again next time.